Well, good morning and welcome everyone to this post-forum uh, seminar on um, the general area of science and belief uh, in God. Can we believe in God in the age of science? Um, this is uh, based on a chunk of material from a course module that I wrote for my college, uh, NLA University College in Norway, uh, that we ran for the first time uh, this year. Uh, a course on the, the Christian view of life and science in apologetic perspective, um, which was a course which is uh, uh, heavily online as well. So if you're actually interested in more of this kind of material and perhaps in doing some uh, online uh, study for, for credits, it's a 10 credit course, or you know people who might be interested, uh, do let them know. So this morning we'll be looking at uh, belief in God, theism, in the context of our uh, scientific spiritual culture. We'll be considering how science offers both challenges and opportunities to the theological spiritual discipline of Christian apologetics. Now you'll notice a number of terms highlighted in orange here, as I tend to do. And as we get started, we need to introduce some key concepts. The theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century pictured theology as the queen of the sciences who was assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. Uh, by academic training and background, I'm a philosopher. Now, the, the Latin word uh, used by Thomas here would have been scientia, which just meant knowledge or a, a, a field where you, you study something we think we know. And the, the study of nature that we in our society would now call science was called natural philosophy. That is, philosophy about the natural world. Now, a rough and ready definition of philosophy might be something like it is uh, the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. The pursuit, the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions about life, the universe, and everything through the practice of good intellectual habits. But what is science? Philosophers of science are generally agreed that we don't really have a hard and fast airtight definition of what science is in distinction from saying, you know, this is science and these other things are not. Philosopher of science and mathematician John Lennox says there is no one agreed scientific method, though certain elements crop up regularly in attempts to describe what scientific activity involves. Uh, things like um, having hypothesis, experiment, data, evidence, modified theory, prediction, explanation, and so on. But precise definition is elusive. Bearing that in mind, uh, here's my kind of attempt at giving a definition of, of natural sciences, at least here. I would think of the natural sciences as uh, they're a, a fallible, first-order discipline wherein humans seek to use epistemologically, how we think, virtuous methods to understand explain 
and or predict as much as they can about physical reality, especially by paying attention to how empirical experience can confirm or undermine such truth claims. We're thinking here about science in the modern, like modernistic sense. The roots of this, I think, go back to folks like the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, who made a, a flawed but very influential, still in some circles, argument against the possibility and or believability of claims about miracles. The 19th century empiricist philosopher August Comte insisted that science, properly practiced, could make no reference to divine action to explain any events or phenomena. In his take on the theory of evolution, Charles Darwin followed in Comte's footsteps, uh, uh, assuming that any explanation framed in terms of divine creative activity was, quote, not a scientific explanation. Now this definitional exclusion of um, divine or indeed even irreducibly mental activity from the natural sciences uh, or from science in general, sometimes it's put, uh, a rule that's known to philosophers as methodological naturalism remains influential today, though it is less popular now than it was in the 19th or 20th centuries. The atheist philosopher Mary Midgley, in her book Are You an Illusion, wrote that physical science is not a separate supreme champion outclassing history or philosophy it has no private line to reality philosopher of science Del Ratch in his excellent uh, very readable short book Science and Its Limits uh, says science cannot validate either scientific method itself or the, the presuppositions of that method those who claim either that science is competent for dealing with all matters or that science is the only legitimate method for dealing with any matter are seriously confused. That is, science only gives part of the picture. There are second order, remember I described science as a first order discipline, there are second-order philosophical questions, questions about science and the significance of scientific ideas. Scientists have philosophical disagreements, disagreements that can't be settled on scientific or empirical grounds, but which affect how they do science. We've just mentioned about this this rule that became popular in the 19th century of how to do science. However detailed and accurate our scientific descriptions of physical realities become, such scientific descriptions can't explain why physical reality 
has the fundamental structure that it has. The fundamental physical structure that it has. You can't give a scientific explanation of that. Or why any physical reality at all described by that structure exists. You know, the philosophical question of why does something exist rather than nothing, and so on. So science makes metaphysical, philosophical assumptions, and it raises metaphysical, philosophical questions that require metaphysical, philosophical answers. Now, I dropped the word uh, spirituality in at the beginning and described our, our, the, 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 the scientific spiritual culture and the spiritual discipline of apologetics and so on. A spirituality is another way of talking about having a way of life. It's a way of life that includes your worldview. Uh, you know, spirituality is made up of your worldview assumptions about reality, the ideas about reality that you believe or act on the basis of, combined with your attitudes, uh, your choosing, your committing to things, that, and that combination of your assumptions and your attitudes leads to your acting in the world in a certain way. So the combination, that the attempt to integrate your assumptions, attitude, and actions, or you know, if you're used to these three alliterative points from sermons, another way I put it sometimes is your head and your heart and your hands. Right? Well, think of Jesus' teaching about virtuous spirituality involving loving God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. See those three categories. I have, have a, a holistic love or respectful obedience in the Old Testament meaning here. A holistic love of God that isn't torn between gods. Jesus is referencing back to Deuteronomy 6 here. So Christians put a particular Christocentric content into that structure of spirituality but a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist has a spirituality, a way of living that attempts to combine their assumptions and their attitudes and how they act in the world together. But different spiritualities put different content, although there'll be some overlap, there'll be some differences into that, that generic structure. Now, a culture is, you could think of it as a, a corporate spirituality. The set of shared assumptions and attitudes and ways of acting, um, perhaps together with its artistic traditions. A particular focus in thinking about culture tends to be the artistic expression of a shared spiritual culture. Now, interestingly, the word art comes from the Latin word ars meaning art, yeah, uh, craft, science, skill, or technique. And it overlaps, therefore, with the Latin term scientia, which we looked at earlier, meaning knowledge or skill. 
fascinating to observe that in a medieval university, a Master of Arts degree included the study of astronomy, which in our culture now, we would classify as, well, that's, you're doing a Master of Arts degree, what the heck are you doing astronomy for? That should be in the science department. But for the medievals, you were studying ours, right? And it has this wide breadth of meaning. So a culture, in this sense, uh, may be or include a, a scientific spiritual culture. Now I said, uh, you know, your spirituality, your way of life includes your worldview, and I want to just focus our attention on two basic elements of people's worldviews. The question of what is real and the question of how do we know anything. In fancy philosophical terms, the what is real question is what philosophers call ontology, the study of being. Assumptions about reality, i.e. what sort of things exist. So questions about do physical things really exist independently of our, our thoughts about them? Or as with a, a pantheistic worldview, is the physical world really an illusion and there is only a spiritual reality? Or is there really a physical reality? Is there only a physical reality and no spiritual reality? These are the three basic categories. It's all physical, it's all spiritual, or it's both physical and spiritual realities exist alongside one another. Did one create the other? What's the relationship between them? Those are all questions about you know, what's real? What's the nature of reality, ontology? But then, of course, there's the question of, well, how do we know? Can we know? What is it to know? These are questions that philosophers call part uh, the discipline of epistemology, which is, as I say, you know, the fancy philosophical way of saying how we know stuff studies, right? <laughs> Our uh, assumptions about knowledge. So, to give a concrete example, you know, coffee exists as a physical reality. And this is something, you know, that's a claim about ontology. There is a physical reality. But this is something I know via my kind of mental introspection, looking within my mental introspective knowledge of what my senses are telling me. I also would say that my pleasure in drinking the coffee is something that exists. But I don't think that my pleasure in drinking the coffee is a physical thing that exists. I think it's caused by a physical thing, but it's not itself a physical thing. The pleasure I feel, which is something I know, again, by introspecting my, my mental states. And I don't think that my mental states just are, say, the state of my neurons in my brain. I think there's a relationship, but I don't think they're the same thing, because I'm a, a mind-body dualist, as a philosopher would say. So these are the kind of two basic uh, elements of worldview that will be quite important in our discussions and thinking today. What is real? Ontology. How do we know stuff? Epistemology. Now, according to the, the philosophies of, of naturalism and materialism, and often those terms are kind of used interchangeably, 
Uh, but in general terms, naturalism says that reality is an uncreated, purposeless, therefore, because it had no creator who had a purpose in making it, valueless, causally closed, non-intentional system. And materialism, you could kind of think of as naturalism plus the added claim that reality is a merely physical system. So, for example, atheist philosopher Alex Rosenberg asserts that physics is causally closed, nothing affects the physical world from outside the physical world. Any explanation of anything in the physical world is a physical explanation, therefore. Physics is causally closed and causally complete. It tells the complete causal story of anything. So there is no, no, no events that are caused by something beyond the physical world. Physics is causally closed and causally complete on his worldview. And of course we have to ask questions about, well, does reality really fit into the materialistic box description of reality? For example, does the fact that coffee exists fit into, is it coherent with that, that materialistic box, that description of reality? That coffee exists seems to fit in there, but does the fact that I know this via my mental introspection of my physical senses, does that fact fit in? Does the fact that I have pleasure in drinking coffee, that that pleasure exists, is that something that fits into the materialistic box or not? The fact that I know this by a mental introspection, does that fit or not? Now, Alvin Planting, a very famous Christian philosopher from the States, says that a naturalist or materialist will be an atheist. But not every atheist is a naturalist or materialist. So naturalism is stronger than atheism, as it were. Naturalism includes atheism and, and more. But there are, for example, forms of, of Buddhism that are atheistic. Right, but they believe in the existence of spiritual reality, but just not God. So atheism, from the, the Greek atheos, uh, from a meaning without and theos meaning God, uh, atheism, without God, God is not among the things an atheist believes to be real. Indeed, the Cambridge Dictionary defines an atheist as someone who believes that God does not exist. Now, some atheists want to define atheism as simply a lack of belief in God. But, A, that makes all cats into atheists. And B, it fails to distinguish between atheism and agnosticism. So, atheist Kyle Nielsen uh, says that atheism in general is the critique and denial of metaphysical beliefs in God or spiritual beings. As such, it usually is distinguished from theism, which affirms the reality of the divine and often seeks to demonstrate its existence. Atheism is also distinguished from agnosticism, which leaves open the question of whether there is a God or not. 
professing to find the questions unanswered, I just don't know whether there's a God or not, or unanswerable, we can't know whether there's a God or not. We have strong and weak varieties of agnosticism. I've just put on there a little, little picture from um, the Richard Dawkins scale of belief or disbelief in God from his book, The God Delusion. You can, of course, believe or not believe these things to different degrees of confidence. But how do we know that these, this is what reality consists or doesn't consist of? Well, according to scientism, and notice the difference between science and scientism. Scientism is an epistemology and an approach to how we know stuff. Scientism, says with Alex Rosenberg, being scientific just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We, treat, uh, we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. Or atheist Peter Atkins, uh, a chemist, says, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. But the scientific demand that, that basically you could cash out as the, the demand that every rational belief, to count as rational, a belief must be justified by scientific or empirical evidence. That demand, that rule for how we approach knowing things, is self-contradictory. Because, A, it can't be justified, as a rule, by scientific empirical evidence. And B, it entails an infinite regress, actually, when you think about it, that just can't be satisfied. You'd have to have, you know, do I believe this? Well, I need evidence for it. But should I believe that the evidence really is real and really does point towards the truth of the first thing that I wanted to know about? Well, I'd, on this rule, I'd have to have evidence for my evidence. But then I need evidence for my evidence, and evidence for my evidence for my evidence. For my evidence for my, I, and I can never satisfy that demand, ultimately, because it just generates an infinite regress. This scientific demand is also open, I think, to obvious counterexamples. That, that you just start from a position of saying, well, this just seems obviously true, and I'm justified in believing this to be true, therefore, until you've got some good reason to convince me that I'm wrong. The burden of proof is on the sceptic here. Um, so counterexamples like the existence of metaphysical, moral, and, and ascetic knowledge, that rainbow is beautiful. Um, that act of killing people was murder, and it was wrong, and so on. So, for example, okay, scientific knowledge here, coffee exists. Maybe we can let that in, but pleasure in drinking coffee exists. Enjoying coffee is a good thing. This is a beautiful cup. I don't think any of that fits. <laughs> Nancy Piercy, in her fascinating book, Saving Leonardo, notes the strict separation of facts from values, whether it's justified by the naturalism, materialism, or by this scientism, is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought between descriptive statements and normative or prescriptive statements. In earlier ages, however, people thought that both types of statements is naught dealt with questions of truth. 
If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false. But on the fact-value distinction, stuff on the value side of that distinction is no longer counted as, as being the sort of claim that is either true or false. It's just subjective. And the factual claims that can be either true or false is retained for the fact side, which is then usually demarcated in terms of it's the sort of stuff we can prove with science. So values become private, subjective, individual, relative to social groupings and so on. Facts are public and observable and universal and discovered by naturalistic science on this view. So philosopher Richard Rorty, for example, said that we should try to get to the point where we no longer worship anything, where we treat everything, our language, our conscience, our community, as products of time and chance. And if you can't fit it into that materialistic box, then it's not real, it can't be true or false, you can't talk about it in terms of true and false. Well, here's Alex Rosenberg again, describing his worldviews. Really, you'll see a combination of materialism plus scientism plus this fact-value divide very clearly and starkly expressed. He says, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto, i.e. there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on before, as before, except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Rosenberg says individual human life, life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. So there's a sense in which I'd say I think this is a sort of consistent working out of that materialistic, scientific view of reality. He says creating purpose in a world that can't have any, it's like trying to build a perpetual motion machine after you've discovered that nature has ruled them out. He says if this seems hard to take, well, there's always Prozac, which is a... a drug that's helpful for some people who have depression. He says, uh, what should we scientific folks do when overcome by Welshmerts or world weariness? You know, if we get depressed about this picture of the world, well, he says, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. Because, you know, after all, all there is to your mind is what your brain's doing. So change what your brain's doing. But we want to be relating all of this sort of modern view of science whilst bearing in mind the, the, the more kind of classical view of science that I've described and thinking about what's the relationship between these views of science and, and Christian theology and these views of the nature of the world and how science plays into that conversation and Christian theology. That's our, our topic really. So Christian theologian Alison McGrath defines Christian theology as an attempt to make sense of the foundational resources of Christianity in light of what each age regards as first-rate methods. So that would include, in our age, science. Theology is 
a fallible discipline wherein humans seek to a comprehensive Christian worldview that takes into account both the book of special revelation and the book of general revelation. We're trying to integrate, put together these things as part of our integrated worldview that integrates our way of life. As a sub-discipline of Christian apologetics, uh, Christian theology, Christian apologetics, and I just put up the cover of my recent book of essays on the nature of Christian apologetics in 3D, uh, is, I think you can boil it down to this, that apologetics is really the, the art and science of helping people to be persuaded that a Christ-centered spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable, stroke true, life commitment. A Christ-centered spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable life commitment. And you see how that beautiful, true uh, goodness, sort of three classical values in philosophy, links with our assumptions and our attitudes and our, our actions. To recontextualize an image from the pagan philosopher Socrates, the, the Christian apologist is a kind of spiritual midwife helping people to deliver a strong and healthier spiritual response to Jesus as they can muster. So thinking about science offers apologetics both challenges and opportunities. We've seen that naturalism and materialism kind of restricts people un people's understanding of the reality that is in part studied by the sciences. That scientism as an approach to knowledge restricts people's understanding of knowledge to the empirical methods of often naturalistically defined science. But as we'll see later on in, in our time together, science can support premises, truth claims, in philosophical arguments for or against the existence of God as well. So it, it, it can play into the discussion in, in both directions here. Let's keep on target, and we'll look at a little focus on um, debunking the so-called conflict thesis. The, the conflict thesis states that when science and theology have overlapping interests, and it seems that sometimes they do, science is, at least more often than not, in an incompatible conflict with theology, wherein science is right and theology is wrong. So when there's an overlapping interest, science is in a conflict with theology, and the science is right and the theology is wrong. That's the conflict thesis. But as a historian of science, Peter Harrison writes, a bit of a long quote, but a very useful, good one, he says, advocates of the conflict thesis hold that there has been a perennial, a long-lasting conflict between science and religion and that such conflict is inevitable. The thesis found its definitive formulation in the 19th century and despite powerful criticism by historians, is still commonly encountered in contemporary debates about science and religion. But the current consensus among historians is that the history of science-religion relations is too complex to fit into any simple pattern of unremitting conflict. 
The conflict thesis is conceptually simplistic and at odds with the historical evidence. Uh, I live very uh, near to Salisbury Cathedral in England. It's got the, the tallest uh, medieval uh, cathedral spire in Europe. The Indian philosopher, philosopher Vishal Mangawadi says that the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology, nurtured by the church. The Bible created and underpinned the scientific outlook. That, historically speaking, is the, the origins of scientific, in, in our kind of um, scientific revolution way. But the more that historians of science have looked into the, you know, the scientific revolution, the more that they've seen that there's not this sort of step phase change from the medieval dark ages where knowledge and, and science was kind of repressed by the church and so on, and then the flowering of the, the, the scientific revolution. They see that the roots of the scientific revolution were actually grown in the medieval church. Most ancient cultures had worldviews that were not conducive to science. For example, according to pantheistic worldviews, the natural world is an illusion. Anyway, according to, say, Greek polytheism, the natural world is governed by unreliable, finite gods who are often at odds with one another and who ultimately trace their own origins to primeval chaos as the, the root of reality being chaotic. That's not a worldview conducive to thinking, oh yeah, I'll do some scientific investigation on how the world, you know, reliably and regularly kind of works. Philosopher of science Stephen C. Mayer recounts how the ancient Greek philosophers thought that nature reflected an underlying order, some of them, but assumed that they could deduce how nature ought to behave from first principles based upon only superficial observation of natural phenomena or without observing nature at all. So this is why the, you know, the ancient Greek thinkers, some of them sit down in their ancient Greek equivalent of an armchair and think, you know, I wonder how planets move. Well, if I were making them, you know, I'd make them go in circles because like circles are perfect, aren't they? So planets must go in circles. It, it wouldn't really have crossed the ancient Greek mind to you know, sit up late at night with a notebook, <laughs> taking data and trying to get some empirical evidence and then formulating some theories and then testing that again. It's just like, oh, just think about it. Meyer explains that modern science was specifically inspired by the conviction that the universe is the product of a rational mind, on the one hand, uh, who designed the human mind to understand it. It's another significant factor. Plantinga again says, modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism. It's a shining example of the powers of reason which God has created us with. It's a spectacular display of the image of God in us human beings. So, Christians are committed to taking science and the deliverances of contemporary science with their utmost seriousness. 
because it's an outworking of the image of God in humanity. Back to Salisbury Cathedral again. Salisbury Cathedral has what is believed to be the oldest, or at least one of the oldest, medieval clocks dating from around 1386, it says on the plaque. Seems fairly specific. <laughs> uh, it's thought to be the oldest working clock in the world. It's an example of the way in which the church fostered science, leading edge technology, and so on. The church has always been interested in leading edge um, IT technology in particular. Medieval cathedrals had full color display units, <laughs> stained glass windows. Big pixels. They, they, had, they had surround sound, stereophonic, not only stereophonic, but stereophonic surround sound. Put choir boys up in the roof space, different places around the place, you get your stereophonic surround sound, sound system. Um, polyphonic music, invented by the, uh, you know, it's using um, developments in culture and science. Uh, and you know the, the architectural design of how we have a building that you know a voice can reach within it and so on. Uh, sociologist of science Steve Fuller says that while I cannot honestly say that I believe in a divine personal creator, no plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Atheism as a, a positive doctrine has done precious little for science. It says science makes sense only if there is an overall design to nature that we are especially well equipped to fathom. Even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day -day animal survival. He says, humanity's creation in the image of God provides the clearest historical rationale for this rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. Isn't that fascinating? So, science makes these philosophical assumptions, and it makes philosophical assumptions that are actually can be warranted or justified within the context of a theistic worldview. That's not surprising because these are the philosophical assumptions that science grew out of, right? It assumes that the natural world exhibits a rational order, that the human mind is at least to a fair degree able to understand the rational order displayed by the natural world, that human cognitive and sensory faculties are, generally speaking, reliable, that the rational order displayed by the natural world cannot necessarily be just deduced from first principles, so observation and experiment are useful in science, that there are knowable objective values of truth and goodness and beauty. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I can see the truth thing, but goodness, beauty, remember what I said about my maths is more beautiful than yours, it's more elegant, it's more, uh, it's more beautiful. A goodness, um, did you reliably report the results of your experiment when you wrote it up in the paper, or did you fudge it? Because I'm going to have to rely upon, because I can't you know, redo all of the experiments that I reference in my work. The practice of science as a sociological institution depends upon moral values and uh, holding people accountable for failing to toe the line with respect to certain moral values and so on. And a worldview that would 
saying, oh, that's on the wrong side of the fat value divide, for example, might actually undermine the practice of science, yeah? So there are two major sources of apparent conflict between science and theology, and those boil down to one, bad readings of scripture, and two, bad philosophies of science. I won't have very much to say on bad readings of scripture, because that'll take us too far afield from a focus on theism and science, but let me just quote Augustine from his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis, um, by which he, of course, meant the the interpretation of Genesis according to the literary genre that it is, and that, of course, is much discussed even these days, but he didn't mean wouldn't be literal necessarily. He meant the, the correct literary interpretation of Genesis. But he said this, he said, in matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, we may find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith that we have received. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position that we've adopted, we too fall with it. Good advice to bear in mind. Turning to bad philosophies of science, I want to go through four and then we'll stop again. Verificationism, scientism, which we've talked a little bit about already, naturalism, which we've talked about already, and methodological naturalism, and the kind of distinction between those last two. So starting with verificationism, the verification principle advanced by the so-called logical positivist movement in the 1930s said that the meaning of any statement that's not just true by definition, like a square has four sides, right? depends on its ability to be empirically verified, at least in principle. So uh, the moon is made of cheese, it's, it may be silly, but it's a meaningful statement, because at least in principle, you know, I could test it were I to find myself on the moon with a plate and a knife, yeah? <laughs> some crackers. Wallace and Gromit's uh, first Wallace and Gromit adventure, go to the moon, very funny. Um, i.e. coffee exists is a meaningful statement because you can at least in principle verify this by seeing, touching, smelling, tasting the coffee. But God exists, or indeed note, God does not exist, is a meaningless, meaningless statement because you can't, supposedly can't, verify God's existence. So A.J. Eyre, who popularised this in the UK, uh, said that God is a metaphysical term, and if God is a metaphysical term, then it can't even be probable that a God exists. For to say that God exists is to make a metaphysical utterance which cannot be either true or false. If a putative proposition fails to satisfy the verification principle and is not a tautology, not true by definition, it is metaphysical, and being metaphysical is neither true nor false, but literally senseless. Think back to the problem that we had with scientism, and you might start seeing the problem with this and the relationship between them. Well, first of all, although one cannot directly verify God's existence by, say, tasting God, literally, smelling God, literally, and so on, 
Several arguments for theism can be framed using the very same sort of inductive verification type arguments used within science. So Basil Mitchell in his The Justification of Religious Belief pointed out that the logical positivist movement started as an attempt to make this clear demarcation between science and common sense on the one hand and metaphysics and theology, ooh, ooh, theology on the other. But work in the philosophy of science convinced people that what the logical positivists had said about science was not true. And by the time the philosophers of science had developed and amplified their accounts of how rationality works in science, people discovered that similar accounts applied equally well to the areas which they had previously sought to exclude, namely theology and metaphysics. So you can't make this distinction line. Verificationism didn't shoulder the burden of proof needed to overturn atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen again, his common sense observation that well, most claims that people make are not scientific, yet they can for all that be true or false. So they must be meaningful if you can judge them as true or false. But most importantly, centrally, verificationism, like scientism, contradicted itself. The verification principle is neither true by definition nor something that can be empirically verified. Even A.J. Eyre ended up rejecting verificationism in the end. As William Lane Craig says, the collapse of verificationism during the second half of the 20th century, news which has yet to reach the ears of some of the new atheists, by the way, was undoubtedly the most interesting, imp most important philosophical event of the century. Its demise brought about a resurgence of metaphysics, along with other traditional problems of philosophy that had been hitherto suppressed. And accompanying this resurgence in philosophy and metaphysics has come something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance in Christian philosophy. Uh, scientism we've talked a little bit about, but and these quotes from Rosenberg and Atkins we, we've had earlier. Um, scientism is really just applying verificationism to epistemology rather than to meaning. Supplying verificationism to epistemology rather than meaning, you get scientism. Setting up science as the only reliable or perhaps the most reliable pathway to rational belief and knowledge. But like scientism, verificationism, like verificationism, scientism assumes the existence of a firm distinction or line of demarcation between science and philosophy in order to reject philosophy as a way of knowing and so exclude metaphysics from science. But as we've seen, the very roots of science are metaphysical. Science depends upon and raises metaphysical issues. It is inextricably linked to metaphysics. As Francis J. Beckwith uh, reports, today the overwhelming consensus in philosophy of science is that demarcation criteria are doomed to failure. In other words, science is and always has been really natural philosophy. Trying to demarcate, to separate science from philosophy leads to problems for science. So we had uh, earlier just a reminder, this scientific demand, the application of the positivist verification rule, turning that into a rule about knowledge and you get scientism. And similarly, it's self-contradictory in just the same way and it generates an infinite regress and it, 
it can't stand up to obvious counterexamples. That was really Cohen Nielsen's point. Um, naturalism and methodological naturalism, then we pause again. So, the astronomer Carl Sagan famously said at the beginning of the original version of the Cosmos TV series, the cosmos is all there ever was, is, or shall be. You know. um, this is a statement of naturalism by a scientist. But we should bear in mind the fact that naturalism is a metaphysical position. It's not a scientific position that he's expressing here. Not everything a scientist says is scientific, right? Just as not everything I say is philosophical. <laughs> uh, science is not an inherently naturalistic enterprise, as shown by its Christian origins. A scientific description or explanation that doesn't mention God does not thereby deny God's existence or contradict theism. You know, when Newton formulated the expression of the, the rule of gravitational attraction. He didn't say, oh, now we know. We don't need God to explain why things fall. Well, no, but you don't need to mention God in explaining why things fall in science, but that doesn't mean that God's not actually involved, because there are second-order questions like, why is there any physical matter at all to be a ball falling towards a gravity well? Why does that? Why do those things? Why do they behave regularly from moment to moment according to the same mathematically expressible law? Why isn't reality just a chaos that's unreliable at all? Those are philosophical questions, which you can give good theistic answers to. Any explanation of empirical data X in terms of uh, a material reality Y always leaves open philosophical questions such as, well, yeah, but why does why exist? And is the existence of why something that is intended or unintended? Like, uh, okay, there, there, are, there are atoms because there was a Big Bang. But why was there a Big Bang? And was the Big Bang intended or not? Now, methodological naturalism, as the US and National Academy of Sciences says, the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. By which I think they mean the statements of natural science, because this is going to cause huge problems for the social sciences and the applied sciences. <sighs> if you can't, you must only invoke natural things and processes. Um, you'd have to make sure that, you know, no mind-body dualist is allowed to do forensic science because they think it was a murder rather than an accident and they explain why the body in the lab is dead by reference to the intentional action of a mind and they don't think that that mind just is someone's brain so now their description of what happened is not scientific. Mm -hmm. Difficulties. But anyway, the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. In other words, although science doesn't deny the existence of anything supernatural, we're not expressing metaphysical naturalism here. 
Science must never mention anything supernatural. That, that is verboten. We must not mention anything supernatural within science. But why? Is this a good rule to adopt? And why? Well, just very briefly, here's a reflection from an atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton. And there are others that I could quote it, other atheist philosophers and scientists, indeed, who say very much the same thing. Monton says, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, well, it follows that the aim, the purpose of science, is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. So, do you want science to be a search for the best naturalistic explanation of things, or do you want science to be a search for the true explanation of things? And do you want to kind of decide that in advance of looking at any data? So, Monton says science is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism. Uh, ancient Greek philosophers such as Aristotle thought that the universe was infinitely old and had no beginning, therefore. During late antiquity in the medieval period, many theistic thinkers broke with this tradition on theological and philosophical grounds. For example, the 12th century medieval Muslim philosopher Al-Ghazi argued that the idea of an actual infinity, or actual infinities, entailed various absurdities when you thought carefully about it, such that the past must be finite in order to make sense. And the universe must therefore have had a beginning. Al-Ghazi made the uh, finitude of the past a premise, a truth claim, in an argument for God that's today known as the Kalam cosmological argument being popularised, uh, of course, particularly by the work of William Lane Craig from the States. He did uh, his first uh, PhD uh, on this area. Al-Ghazi said that, oh, look, every being which begins has a cause for its beginning. Now, the world is a being which begins because it has a finite past. Therefore, it, the world, possesses a cause for its beginning. So there's something outside the universe that caused it. Belief in a universe with no beginning became fashionable again in the 18th century, due in part to the influence of German philosopher Immanuel Kant. As philosopher of science Stephen Mayer observes, few physicists or astronomers at the beginning of the 20th century doubted the infinite age of the universe. In 1927, Belgian cosmologist and Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre, combined Einstein's theory of gravity with the observation of a Doppler shift in the light from distant galaxies um, to formulate what would come to be known later as a, the Big Bang theory of the origins of the universe. Now, Big Bang cosmology has developed a lot over time since then, but the basic picture of a universe with a beginning a finite time ago has been the scientific consensus since the, at least since the 1965 discovery of the cosmic background radiation 
left over from the, from the Big Bang, which various satellites have mapped in more detail uh, over time. Uh, to quote from uh, an article in New Scientist magazine, the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? Or indeed, do you? <laughs> Big Bang cosmology, you see, describes the evolution, the change over time of the universe from a very hot, dense state a finite time ago, but it does not say anything about what brought the universe into existence. Big Bang cosmology offers a description of the cosmic past as being finite. It doesn't offer an explanation of that finite cosmic past. That's a mistake. I often found that, that teenage school kids that I used to work with thought that Big Bang cosmology conflicted with belief in God. And so I don't believe in God because the Big Bang explains where we all came from. And so no, the Big Bang's not an, not an explanation, it's a description. It's a description that itself may or may not need an explanation. That's a kind of philosophical question here. So as atheist philosopher Bradley Monton, who we quoted before, says, if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to the Kalam cosmological argument. And this is what Bill Craig did um, in, the, in the 70s, I think it was, because Big Bang cosmology was coming to a main line, and he recognised there's this ancient philosophical tradition of arguing about the finitude of the past, uh, but now we have, seem to have an empirical scientific argument for the same thing. That would be interesting to investigate that, that overlap there. So atheist Nobel laureate in physics Steven Weinberg says uh, the Big Bang theory is as certain as anything in science. I suppose nothing in science is ever mathematically certain, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it's the kind of certainty that simply makes it not worthwhile considering alternatives. Atheist cosmologist Alexander Vlenkin uh, said, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. It says, the answer to the question, did the universe have a beginning, is it probably did. We have no viable models of an eternal universe. So we can make that our first premise, truth claim, in an argument, like Al-Ghazi, but I'm going to put, you know, here's how I'd put a spin on it. Premise one, there was probably a first physical event. Premise two, every physical event has at least one cause outside of itself. Now, if those two claims are both true, it, it, it follows you can draw a certain conclusion from here, but I want to argue for premise two, because Big Bang cosmology would do for premise one, but premise two, why believe this? Well, one, anything contingent or dependent has at least one cause outside of itself. Physical events are, by their nature, contingent. They don't have to exist. And dependent. Therefore, every physical event has at least one cause outside of itself. 
which is our premise T. So if we got 1 and 2, we can draw this conclusion. Therefore, there was probably a first physical event with at least one cause outside of itself. Now we can push a little bit further, if we like. We can change that conclusion into, just rename that premise 3, add a new premise. We're like chaining our little syllogistic units of argumentation together like a daisy chain. Premise 4, any, any first physical event with at least one cause outside of itself must have a non-physical cause. Right? Because causes are either physical or not. There's not really any other option there, right? From which it would follow, new conclusion follows, that therefore there was probably a first physical event with a non-physical cause. So if this is correct, that sinks naturalism and materialism as a worldview, what materialism and, and something outside of the universe that caused the universe, and this would be very uncomfortable for a naturalistic worldview, uh, and you can start asking questions about, well, what kind of thing would that have to, uh, to be? Um, at the very least, you're getting close to a chunk of what theism believes. Um, let me give you this kind of more concrete illustration, which I like doing. Suppose I ask you to loan me a book uh, and you say, no, I don't have a copy right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I'll lend it to you. Uh, but suppose your friend says the same thing to you, and so on, and so on, and so on. Two things are clear. First, if this process of asking to borrow the book, this is an analogy for being caused to exist, getting existence from something outside of yourself. If the process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, I'll never get the book. Second, if I get the book, then the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, to get existence, as it were, someone had the book without having to borrow it. There's got to be something that just has existence and the ability to give it without having to get that from anywhere. Likewise, argues philosopher Richard Pertill, consider any contingent or dependent reality, such as a physical event, including any first physical event, since the same two principles apply, if the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process hasn't gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. And you combine that with the argument we've already given, and you're, you're increasing the, the kind of photo-fit description of the culprit, as it were. So as philosopher Dallas Willard famously argued in a famous paper of his, said the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness, the completeness of the series of dependencies that underlie the existence of any given physical state, including the first one, logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. 
where we've already argued in the, the Kalam argument there that the, the physical universe probably has a non-physical cause outside of itself. And so we can say a non-physical cause, again, on pain of infinite regress, a non-physical cause that is self-existent in, in that sense. This is at least part of the puzzle of existence. A self-existent, i.e. independent, and therefore non-physical state of being that caused the existence of the physical universe. This is a good slice of what theists mean by God. But you see how we've gone from a, a, a premise, a truth claim, that's warranted by a scientific theory, and combined that with philosophical claims about the nature of causality and so on, to lead to a philosophical conclusion. So again, it's showing you this idea you just science and theology and never the twain shall meet. Actually, you can have you can have premises and philosophical arguments for God, where some of the bits of that argument, some of the premises of those arguments can be warranted by scientific theories. Looking at cosmology in God part two, where we're turn from the Big Bang and relationship to the Kalam cosmological argument and look at, at what's called cosmic fine tuning. Beginning with atheist astrophysicist Fred Hoyle's 1953 prediction of a finely tuned resonance state in the carbon-12 atomic nucleus, which was later verified and is now known as the Hoyle state, scientists have come to recognize that the existence of organic life, and most especially the existence of what philosopher Robin Collins calls embodied conscious agents, ECAs, uh, like ourselves, that is, observer, observers able to significantly interact with each other and to develop scientific technology and discover the universe, that the existence of life like that in particular as well depends upon a staggering degree of cosmic and indeed more local planetary, but I won't go into that, uh, fine-tuning. William Lane Craig gives a good explanation of this. He says, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life, ECAs, uh, depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself, in addition to the, the laws of physics themselves. Fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain so-called constants, like the constant that represents the force of gravity. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. Second, there are initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe, right at the beginning. So you have initial conditions and then regular patterns of way things, way things behave that act upon from the basis of those con initial conditions. Craig says these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily, what a great word, extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. A change in the strength of the atomic weak force by only one part in 10 to the power of 100 
would have prevented a life-permitting universe. Now, to give you some kind of comparison for these numbers, where we, we write these numbers, they're so long, it's really difficult or impossible, literally, to write them out longhand, even if like, you used every atom in the universe as somewhere to write a zero in the number. <laughs> these are really big numbers. So it's generally said that the, the number of fundamental particles or whatever in the universe is around about 10 to the power of 80. All right. A change in just one of these values in the fine-tuning, the atomic weak force, of by one part in 10 to the 100 would have prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant, which drives the, in, the inflation, the expansion of the universe, is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to the 120. Uh, and because these, these multiples, you're, you're not doing adding, you're doing multiplying. It's the number of times you're multiplying the number. So these, these numbers go up kind of exponentially, as it were. The odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing by chance are of the order of 1 out of 10 to the 10 to the 123. These numbers are not astronomical in their size. They are way beyond astronomical in their size, where saying something is astronomically big is like saying it's as big as the number of stars in the observable universe or something like that. Way beyond that. Craig observes that to detect design, he says, in addition to high improbability, we can call that complexity, there also needs to be a conformity, a match, to an independently given pattern. When these two elements are present, we have what's called specified complexity, or sometimes called complex specified information, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. Um, so this thing about the, the independent pattern, it's not enough just to see an arrow on a wall in the centre of a target. You know, maybe someone went, I'm going to shoot an arrow, and then I'm going to get a paint pot, go up to my arrow, and draw a target around it. <laughs> it's got to be an independently given. You can't just read off the pattern from observing the event itself. So it's got to be a non-ad hoc pattern. But that combination of high enough, high enough complexity with independent pattern matching is a tip-off to intelligent design. Um, concrete example. So Craig says, thus, in a poker game, any deal of the cards is equally and highly improbable. So you get one deal of cards of that length, one specific deal, out of all of the possible deals, combinations of cards of that length. So it's highly improbable, any hand of cards that you get. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, which would be a winning hand in poker, I, I love that he implicit joke here, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. And if you raised your suspicions 
with this particular poker player, he couldn't rationally allay your suspicions by saying, hey, any hand of cards that I get is equally as improbable as any other. It's just as improbable as the, your hand. I said, but you keep getting all four aces every time that you're the person who deals the cards. And he says, yeah, I'm lucky. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm going to be highly suspicious of them. Uh, so uh, a philosopher uh, from Norway, called Espin Lukhammer, uh, says that, uh, quotes a cosmologist called Luke Barnes, who's calculated using what he says are conservative numbers, the combined odds of this fine-tuning, using conservative numbers, and he says, the combined odds are that a life-permitting universe should exist on the assumption of naturalism, on the assumption that there's no intention or design behind it, is less than one part out of 10 to the 136. A phys physicist called Lee Smolin has calculated that the odds of a life-compatible numbers you know, coming up in the casino of life, as it were, uh, are around one chance in 10 to the 229. As Stephen Hawking uh, said with co-author Leonard Mlodnow in their book, The Grand Design, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. Very special pattern and highly improbable, specified complexity. So it seems like the fine-tuning of the universe, discovered since the 1950s, exhibits this kind of pattern, this specified complexity. So if we have that as our first premise, that the universe does exhibit specified complexity, <coughs> and combine that with premise two, things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed, well, of course, that spits out the conclusion that the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed, right? So I'm, I'm saying that, what, pointing out that what even Stephen Hawking and Melodinov say about the, the very special and highly improbable, clearly what they're really talking about is that the universe appears at least to exhibit this kind of specified complexity, which gives us a, de a design argument from this fine tuning. Now, the, the main, there are other objections, of course, and the main objection, which I'll focus on, uh, is to premise one here, is the many universes objection. Um, it's a bit like saying, yeah, I keep getting all four aces when I deal, but maybe, there are a really large number of poker games going on, such that it becomes less surprising that someone is lucky. Okay? I give myself more rolls of the dice, or whatever. The many universe objection denies premise one of this argument by hypothesizing the existence of an infinite, or at least a very large, multiverse of differently tuned universes with different starting conditions, such that it becomes more probable that by chance one of them would happen to hit that specification of, of being compatible with life. So it's saying, okay, it's specified, but it's not complex enough, it's not unlikely enough to trigger a design inference. So it's denying the, the complexity bit of premise one. So Richard Dawkins suggests that there are billions of universes having different laws and constants. 
We could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universities whose laws and constants happen to be propitious or to allow our evolution. So that's his rejoinder. Now, I think there were at least eight problems with the multiverse hypothesis, which together form a cumulative argument against it. That it's speculative, complex, empirically unverifiable and unverified, uh, that it's ad hoc, that it's insufficient to explain away the data, that it's question-begging, that it undermines the practice of science, and that it is strongly disconfirmed by evidence. I will go through these one by one, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of these objections apply in spades to an actually infinite multiverse postulation, uh, and there are additional objections to an actually infinite multiverse. So I'll, I'll just focus on a, a, a large uh, multiverse. So, um, speculative, um, astrophysicist Rodney Holder points out that the physics associated with multiverse theories is speculative, to say the least, especially when it comes to, to string theory. It's a very complex hypothesis. You would need a lot of differently tuned, and why are they differently tuned? Universes to improve the odds of having a single life-permitting universe. And why, why isn't whatever produces these multiverses like a photocopying machine spitting out lots of identical universes that are incompatible with life? Why, does it, why are there lots of universes that have different constants and quantities, as, as Dawkins says? That's a kind of a question left, left hanging here. It's a lot of complexity to posit just to avoid what seems to be the common sense inference. So British philosopher Richard Swinburne, for example, says to, to postulate a trillion, trillion other universes rather than one god in order to explain the orderliness of the universe seems like the height of irrationality. Now, any, any, at least any scientific multiverse hypothesis has to posit some sort of universe-generating mechanism uh, and perhaps it's this mechanism that should, and not its results that should be compared with the God hypothesis in that case. But a good essay in this book, uh, New Theist Response to the New Atheist, uh, by uh, Logan Paul Gage, he points out that simplicity in explanation is a secondary virtue, not an automatic trump card, Um, More complex theories should not be automatically discounted. There are other explanatory virtues involved in deciding what the best explanation is, he's saying. He says, even if there is something of a a, a discount on new tokens of old kinds, so he's saying, well, at least we know that there can be universes when we're invoking multiple other universes to explain this data. There's something of a discount on new tokens of old kinds of thing. It isn't a blank check. Uh, One new kind of thing in an explanation uh, would be more than offset by infinitely many new tokens of an old kind, for example. And Logan argues that, um, Logan Gage argues that theism is simpler than naturalism in terms of the number of fundamental entities postulated in theory. The number of fundamental entities postulated in the theories in the theories is simpler on theism three empirically unverified and unverifiable so Adam Frank is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester this is from a very recent article February 2022 from Big Think Um, he said that there is no empirically grounded scientific reason to believe there's such a thing as a multiverse of parallel realities 
And the cosmologist George Ellis says that the existence of multiverses is neither established nor scientifically establishable. Fourthly, it's, it's ad hoc. Um, we've got premise one here. Dawkins um, is really saying, if there were enough different universes, then the specified structure of our universe wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify a design inference. That's his objection. But he needs premise two, there are enough different universes to get to the conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning does not justify design inference. It's not enough for him to just say, well, maybe this. That's not sufficient as an objection to an inference from known data to say, maybe, if there were, because uh, he, uh, he actually needs to say premise two, and, and there are, and that undermines the, the inference. It's a bit like saying, um, look, if X big number of monkeys existed with enough typewriters and paper and time on their hands, then they could type the plays of um, Henrik Ibsen. You can, you can see I do this work in Norway. Uh, of Henrik Ibsen by chance, right? If there were enough, they could, in theory. But anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as an actual explanation for the existence of the plays of Ibsen will ask, can you say that again? I, I any, anyone faced, so if a big enough number of monkeys with typewriters existed, they could, in theory, type the plays of Ibsen by chance, yeah, randomly. Anyone faced with this many monkeys explanation mm -hmm. as a proposed explanation for the existence of the specified complexity of Ibsen's plays, they're going to ask, is there any independent reason to believe in the existence of X number of monkeys and typewriters with time on their hands, randomly typing away. Because if not, they'll quite rationally favour the one author hypothesis rather than the many monkeys hypothesis. So if you say, look at this book, it's specified complex information, it probably was written by someone. It's not enough to say, oh yeah, but if there were enough monkeys with typewriters, therefore your argument doesn't work. That just that doesn't cut the mustard, as the English say. Um, so theoretical physicist Brian Greene says people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there's no evidence supporting their existence. Five, insufficient to explain away the data. Um, even if a multiverse did exist, what guarantees it would be big enough and varied enough to explain away the high degree of fine-tuning seen in our universe? So philosopher of science Bruce Gordon says, there are many independent constants and factors that are fine-tuned to a high degree of precision. The cumulative effect of all these fine-tunings significantly erodes the probabilistic resources of, say, the string landscape in a, in a string theory multiverse universe theory. It's question-begging. Um, as the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis points out in his, uh, his book here, The Goldilocks Enigma, you know, why is the universe just right for life, like the porridge being just right, not too hot, not too cold. Um, he says multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from universe 
to multiverse. It says the same problem of, of explanation reoccurs. It says there has to be a finely tuned, basically, universe generating mechanism to guarantee that you get lots of different universes, different universes of a kind that at least can include the parameters that are needed by life, rather than lots of different universes, none of which could include the parameters needed by life. <laughs> okay? There's still fine-tuning involved. The multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life, because it just raises the question of why does that multiverse universe producer, why is that the kind of thing that produces a multiverse which could include a universe that's fit for life? It has to be fine-tuned to do that. Stephen C. Meyer argues that not only does the universe-generating mechanism in inflationary cosmology require prior unexplained fine-tuning, it actually requires more fine-tuning than it was proposed to explain. And he goes into that in some detail in his recent book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, seven, uh, might, this idea might undermine the practice of science. Going back to Brian Greene, he points out the danger if the multiverse idea takes root. It is that researchers may too quickly give up the search for un underlying explanations for things. It says, when faced with seemingly inexplicable observations, researchers may invoke the framework of the multiverse prematurely, proclaiming that some phenomena or other is, uh, merely reflects conditions in our own bubble universe and thereby failing to discover the deeper understanding that awaits us. In other words, you see something really odd, and you say, that seems strange and unlikely. What explains it? Oh, well, you know, strange stuff is bound to happen in a multiverse, you know. All sorts of randomly strange things are going to happen. Eighth is the idea that the multiverse is disconfirmed. So astrophysicist Rodney Hodler again points out and argues that that our universe is far more special than we would expect it to be, even if it were merely a random member of the subset of universes compatible with our existence. So it says, you know, on the idea that there's a multiverse, and so some of those universes by chance are going to hit the pattern for life bearing. Actually, our universe kind of is overly special. It doesn't just hit the pattern for, like, just about compatible with life. It's, like, really fruitful for life. It doesn't just hit the pattern for it has stable order in it. It hits the pattern for it has huge amounts of long-lasting stable order in it. And if the explanation for why do we observe life and order here is that, well, we, we just happen to be a random member of one of those universes in the multiverse that's compatible with life, you would expect us to observe a universe that is less special, less ordered, less fruitful, although still ordered and fruitful, than the one that we see. And so the fact that we see so much order and fruitfulness actually disconfirms the multiverse hypothesis. Um, atheist Roger Penrose puts it this way. He says, consider how ridiculously cheaper in the sense of improbabilities it would be to simply produce by mere random collisions of particles 
say, the entire solar system with all of its life ready-made, or even just a few conscious brains, so-called Boltzmann brains, the random collisions of, of, of particles just happening to produce a, a, a brain that's thinking <laughs> um, out of the chaos. That, that would be cheaper in the sense of improbable, less improbable. He says, the problem is, why did we not come about that way, this way, rather than from an absurdly less probable 1.4 times 10 to the 10 tedious years of evolution, of, of change over time in an ordered, structured, big ordered, structured, over long times universe. It seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the bubble universe, the multiverse idea. Theoretical physicist, uh, astrophysicist and cosmologist Luke Barnes, who we quoted from earlier, goes into this Boltzmann brain issue and he says Boltzmann brains, Boltzmann was a, a, a scientist from uh, I think 19th or early 20th century, uh, he says Boltzmann brains do not need much fine tuning because they form by means of freak quantum fluctuations. Right? Uh, if small regions of order are more likely than large regions, then Boltzmann brains are vastly more common than observers in large, low-entropy universes like ours. So if we're a random member of the multiverse, you would expect to see that we are Boltzmann brains. But we're not. Uh, if only very special uh, multiverses avoid this problem, then the multiverse itself is fine-tuned and thus question-begging. So there's a kind of dialectic between um, this objection and, and the question-begging uh, objection. And indeed, Barnes says, the problem's not that we, mu that we might be Boltzmann brains, this is kind of a side road that you know, philosophy 101 lectures might go down, are you a brain in a vat? Um, the problem is that we aren't. <laughs> we're taking as read the observation that, no, we're in this, this big highly fruitful, ordered universe, compatible with, with life over long periods of time and so on. Um, but if we were a random member of a multiverse um, that had some life-permitting conditions in it that happened by chance, we would probably be observing something like we're Boltzmann brains, or a lot, just an area of life fruitfulness the size of the solar system, as, as um, Roger Penrose uh, was pointing out. Now, the danger that the multiverse hypothesis undermines science may be mitigated, reduced, by the assumption that we are generic members of the multiverse, but this assumption also underwrites the problem of observational disconfirmation. So the undermined science and the observational disconfirmation problems also they form the horns of a dilemma for the multiverse hypothesis. So. I think in light of the cumulative case, the accumulation of problems against it, the many universes objection does not constitute a sound uh, defeater to premise one of the cosmic uh, fine-tuning argument, uh, and thus um, on those considerations thus far the argument goes through, but of course uh, it's a much debated and discussed field. It's one of the most discussed kind of um, arguments in the, the overlap between natural theology, arguments for God, and science uh, these days. Um, so there's lots of discussion around all sorts of issues, but that at least dips our toe into um, the introduction to the main, main way of, a main way of structuring the argument at least, and the main uh, objection that people um, give to that argument.
Moreover, even if we were to grant the existence of a multiverse, philosopher Michael Rocha makes a very interesting point when he says, our evidence supports a designer whether or not we're in a multiverse because a theistic multiverse, maybe you say maybe God created lots of universes, right? He could do that. A theistic multiverse is a possibility and a theistic multiverse would likely contain a higher proportion at least of life-permitting universes than would an atheistic multiverse. On, on which assumption, the assumption that there is or isn't a God, would you predict that the number of life-permitting universes would be higher or lower? And he says you, you would predict, if, on the assumption that there's a God behind the multiverse, you, you'd predict that you'd see more life-permitting universes. Because that's the kind of thing that a, a designing mind might well be interested in producing. Um, thus, our relevant evidence, argues Rota, is more to be expected on a theistic multiverse hypothesis than on an atheistic multiverse hypothesis. So this is a kind of, okay, I don't think multiverse is a good idea, but even if we are prepared to grant it, uh, that doesn't necessarily end the, the argument here. And again, a, a range of books at, at different levels of this. Um, Bill Craig's On Guard for Students is a good uh, introductory kind of level uh, book that's got a good chapter on fine-tuning. I discuss it in my recent reply to Richard Dawkins did a book recently called Outgrowing God, and I did a response that's in the form of a dialogue between students in a university reading group who happen to be reading Dawkins's book, and they're going through it and discussing it. And you know, in classic dialogue form, different different students represent different positions. So you've got a theist and two different kinds of atheists and an agnostic, and they're kind of discussing the book. And there's a, a chapter in there that I talk a lot about fine-tuning in. Uh, Rodney Holder's introductory level book, Big Bang, Big God, covers a lot of this cosmological stuff well. Agnostic perspective from Paul Davis uh, from the Goldilocks Enigma. Uh, Paul Mayer's recent book on the return of the God hypothesis. He, he, he's one of the guys that uses this specified complexity way of putting the argument. There are other ways of, of putting it using probability theory and so on. Uh, and he's, he's done a lot on this recently uh, about this, the fine-tuning of the multiverse producing mechanisms and things, uh, which I thought was really fascinating stuff. Um, there's been a two-part two book, volumes one and two, uh, edited by Paul Copan on the Clam cosmological argument. Um, and one looks at the philosophical arguments against an infinite past, and one looks at the cosmological data about is there a finite past or not. And so there's one on the science there. Luke Barnes, in a discussion uh, with Garrett Lewis, who doesn't believe in God, so it's a theist and a non-theist, jointly writing a book on fine-tuning together. And that's, again, another place to go to for the fine-tuning is agreed. What's disagreed about is how we explain it, what the best explanation is. Um, Rodney Holder at a higher level of abstraction on God, the multiverse, and everything. And there's some interesting relevant chapters in um, a new theist response to the to new atheists. Looking at design in the context of evolution, and again, as you say, you know, the the where things as, as a whole came from, and the fine tuning of universe compatible with life in it, that, that's kind of one discussion. And then we move on to an even more subset, detail discussion of uh, life and its evolution, its change over time. Um, 
I think it's important to keep in mind the distinction between the doctrine of creation and different models of creation that different Christians hold because they have different interpretations of scripture and of the relevant scientific evidence. This is back to science and theology are both fallible disciplines trying to put, you know, we're trying to kind of meld those together into what would be called a, a synoptic worldview, a, a consistent worldview within our spirituality. So Alvin Plantinger frames the issue like this for, for questions. He says, starting from what's basically the doctrine of creation, we recognise that there are many ways in which God could have created the living things that he has in fact created. We're starting from an agreement on the doctrine of creation here. How, in fact, did he do it? He's raising the question of what model of creation might be true. Did it all happen just by ways of the workings of the laws of physics, which, of course, we would say were created and designed by God? Or was there further like additional divine activity involved? We, he says, we must look at the evidence and consider the probabilities as best we can. All right? So our culture is dominated by what we might call the, the grand evolutionary story or the, the grand evolutionary myth. And I, I'm not using myth to mean untrue story by definition. I'm using myth in the, cl the classical mythology sense, uh, an overarching story within which we, we position and situate our, our, our spiritualities. So the, this grand evolutionary story or Darwinism as we might call it, is not merely a scientific theory, one purporting to explain the origins and diversification of life on Earth over millions of years due to natural processes, be those processes created by God or not. Rather, it is a kind of, it functions in our culture as a naturalistic creation myth, really. As Philip Johnson observed, Darwinism in this sense is the answer to a specific question that grows out of philosophical naturalism. How must creation have occurred if we assume that God had nothing to do with it? This is back to um, the, uh, the atheist philosopher of science that I, that I, that I quoted saying, you know, like methodological naturalism kind of skews the picture of what science is doing and it's no longer asking the question of what did happen what, what's true it's asking what's the best explanation we can come up with that, that fits with a naturalistic worldview. so geneticist Richard Lewontin in his famous quote you may have seen before said this he said it's not that the methods of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world but, on the contrary, that we are forced by our adherence to material causes. That is, we're forced by our philosophy that we bring to doing the science to create a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying. Moreover, that materialism is absolute says Laurentin, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The grand evolutionary story has many different elements to it. The, the ancient Earth hypothesis says that the Earth is about 4.54 billion years old. The progress thesis says that living things, 
gradually increased in complexity over time. So you start with single-celled organisms uh, and eventually you end up with multi-celled organisms, multicellular organisms and you get mammals and marsupials and things later on in history. The common ancestry hypothesis says that contemporary organisms, things that exist today, are all descended from simpler ancestral organisms. The universal common ancestry hypothesis says that all living things are descended from one original, one original primordial organism. Darwin himself was kind of agnostic about whether universal common ancestry was true or not. He said, you know, it evolved from one or a few, few different basic forms of life. What I'm going to call the Darwinian or blind watchmaker evolutionary hypothesis is the idea that evolution, this change over time, happens through natural processes requiring no divine or other non-material or goal-directed teleological guidance. This, notice, philosophical thesis motivates the scientific theory that variation and natural selection and perhaps other similarly undirected mechanisms are sufficient to explain the acknowledged appearance of design in biology. And what's called the, the neo-Darwinist or modern evolutionary synthesis combined Darwin's theory of descent with modification through natural selection with the science of genetics. Darwin didn't know anything about genetics when he put his theories, theories forward. And that was kind of Mendel's work on genetics and was rediscovered later. Um, but in the early part of the 20th century, we put together our knowledge of genetics with Darwinian theory to produce the neo-Darwinian or modern evolutionary synthesis. Now today there's a discussion about the, the modern or extended evolutionary synthesis. There are there's a debate between adherents of the, the, the kind of standard modern synthesis and advocates of a so-called extended evolutionary synthesis who advocate the need for one or more additional explanations of at least bits of evolutionary history, although still framed through this common philosophical view of an unguided, unplanned process of physical chance and or necessity. <coughs> So there are actually many scientists today who say that in terms of being a sufficient, complete explanation of the data, neo-Darwinism is false. It explains some things, but not enough. And there's other competing explanations <coughs> what you need to add. They say, yeah, neo-Darwinism does some stuff. Genetic variation and natural selection explains some things, but it doesn't explain the origination of, say, new, completely new, different forms of animal body plan in the history of life. And they want to supplement the, the standard theory with additional unplanned, unintentional processes. And then we have the naturalistic origins hypothesis that says life arose from non-life by an unplanned and unguided physical process. Now, I've arranged these, introduced these uh, to you in what I and some other scholars would consider an order of most to least probable. 
that as we work our way down this list, I become increasingly sceptical. So I've described these in what many, but by no means all, scholars would consider a descending order of plausibility. Uh, so Plantinger again says, there's excellent evidence for an ancient earth, there's less evidence, but still good evidence in the fossil record for the progress thesis. Uh, and he says, the naturalistic origins thesis seems to me to be, for the most part, mere arrogant bluster. Given our present state of knowledge, I believe it's vastly less probable on the present evidence than its denial. Now, as Christopher Rees uh, says in his introduction to um, four views on Christianity and science, uh, three views on Christianity and science, he says, now we must be cautious about equating our interpretations of scripture with scripture itself. And our interpretations of nature with nature as it truly is. Thus, when we encounter apparent contradictions between the two, we should strive to ensure that we're understanding and interpreting each accurately. In some cases, we may need to revisit our understanding of scripture. And in other cases, we may need to verify that we're grasping the facts about the natural world accurately and interpreting those facts properly. So remember when I talked about the, the conflict thesis was the idea that whenever there was an apparent conflict between science and theology, science was wrong and science, uh, theology was wrong and science was right. Yeah. Rees is, is pointing out that because both science and theology are, are fallible, it's more complicated than that. In some instances of apparent conflict, assuming there isn't any genuine conflict, there's an apparent conflict, it may be that the science is right and our theology is wrong. But that doesn't mean like the Bible is wrong. It means our interpretation, our theology, right, is wrong. But it also may be that our science is wrong. And so we have this kind of hermeneutical interplay, hermeneutical spiral, as those in the um, you know, preaching and the theology networks would no doubt have talked about. Philosophers Michael J. Murray and Michael Rea uh, say this. They say, for the religious believer, the conflicts between science and religion, or apparent conflicts between science and religion, will involve balancing evidence against evidence. The empirical evidence favoring scientific claims against the revelatory evidence, and the evidence that we've interpreted properly, I would say, favoring theological claims. See, they're not saying, you know, there's science and that's rational and there's theology and that's all about faith and just believing stuff. Uh, uh, they're saying both of these disciplines involve rational argument. And so when there's an apparent conflict, what you have to do is balance evidences against each other. He says, they say the Christian critic of evolution might conclude that the evidence for an ancient earth seems quite strong, while the evidence for the naturalistic origin of life is in fact virtually non-existent. This then needs to be balanced against the evidence of revelation. How clear is it that the Bible teaches that the earth is young, for example, or that God directly intervened in the cosmos to bring about life? And there'll be an interplay, an imbalancing of this evidence against evidence as we try and make sense of a picture of reality that coherently puts together what we think we know from everywhere we think we know it from, as it were. 
so it is certainly not a case of, oh, there's an apparent conflict between theology and science, so science is going to win and we have to change our theology. It can be rational to change what you think the science interpretation should be because what you, of what you think the theology interpretation should be. But theology no more gets to play a trump card over science than science gets to play a trump card over theology. We just have to do our best to balance up the scales. So there is room, there is certainly room for doubting our models of creation. Philosopher J.P. Morland says there are sufficient problems in interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 to warrant caution in dogmatically holding that only one understanding is allowable by the text. And, and using that as a kind of trump card against a, uh, a scientific interpretation of the world. Or theologian David Winter says, the phrase, the Bible says, begs a lot of questions. What does the Bible say? To whom is it saying it? What's the context, background, literary form of the passage in question? Is it to be taken literally or figuratively or allegorically? And so on. Those discussions need to be had in, a, in, a, in an open and um, hopefully fruitful manner. But there is also room for doubting Darwinism. The grand evolutionary story contains, as we've seen, philosophical commitments that derive from a naturalistic worldview. And we should be aware of that. These philosophical commitments can be replaced with other philosophical commitments, interpreting the same scientific data within a different worldview. So a theist might very well say that life arose from non-life by a guided physical process. Or they might say life arose from non-life by an unguided physical process that was intended by God, the preconditions of which and the laws which it followed insofar as it was following any natural laws were created by God with the intention that it would do stuff. And, and a God who kept it in existence moment by moment as it did that stuff. All right? Those are two you know, different ways of theologically interpreting the same scientific data against a different philosophical worldview. It is possible to interpret the evolutionary story philosophically and the biblical story theologically so that they contradict each other. And it is possible to use this contradiction to argue against either the truth of evolution or the infallibility of scripture. Right? You get that argument being run in, in, in both ways, by both sides, uh, both bookends of the, the cultural conversation on this today. But it is also, I think, possible, at least, to interpret the evolutionary story philosophically and the biblical story theologically in ways that make them compatible. Maybe there are a number of different ways of, of doing that. Um, maybe you have an opinion on what the most plausible way of doing that is. Maybe you don't. Why would you need one? <laughs> the main thing, after all, is the doctrine of creation. So it's possible, I think, to doubt at least some elements of the grand evolutionary story without doubting every element. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, as we've seen. Now, the question, do you believe in evolution, is it's 
too broad stroke a question. They say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Such doubts can be rationally motivated by theological, philosophical, and or scientific reasons. For example, some atheists deny universal common ancestry whilst still accepting common ancestry on scientific grounds. So universal common ancestry says there was one original life form that emerged from non-life and everything else has evolved from that one creature. Common ancestry says all the life forms that are alive now are descended from simpler common ancestors, but maybe those trace back to three different original kinds of life, or not just one ancestor, but a kind of population of ancestors that were swapping genes hither and thither amongst themselves, and you can't really go back to, you can go back to a population, but not to an individual organism. There's so different ways of cashing out these relationships. Again, many atheists deny the sufficiency, the sufficiency of the modern evolutionary synthesis, that is neo-Darwinism, on scientific grounds, without denying the blind watchmaker thesis. So here's atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor saying phylogeny, that amounts to common descent, could be true even if adaptationism Darwin's theory of evolution isn't. The classical Darwinist account of evolution is on trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists, footnote, non-religious ones, yeah, not Christians, right, perfectly reasonable by secular biologists, are coming to think that the theory of natural selection, the kind of neo-Darwinist, Darwinist picture there, can no longer be taken for granted. Or atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel caused quite a stir with his book Mind and Cosmos a few years ago. Fascinating subtitle here for an atheist writer in our culture. He says, Mind and Cosmos, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. But he's still writing from the viewpoint of an atheist, but he's taking issue with our materialistic worldview. He says, the dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead, non-living matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. Before you can have evolution, you have to have something able to evolve. That means something able to differentially pass along information, to replicate itself, to make mistakes in that replication. You've got to have a lot. That, you can't explain that by saying it evolved, by the method that things evolve from it. And that's a, that's a given. Uh, he says, the more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code, he's pointing to co information, specified complexity in our code, in our genes, and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem. Very 
very briefly just introduce intelligent design theory. This is a step on from the extended evolutionary critique of neo-Darwinism and may have some agreements with the, that critique, but it's going further and it's breaking with this blind watchmaker the thesis and saying, if we chuck that rule out, actually does the evidence point towards design? Can we make design inferences within biology just as we've made it within cosmology? So Stephen C. Meyer, who's a leading proponent of this uh, theory, says the theory of intelligent design holds that there are telltale features of living systems and the universe that are best explained by an intelligent cause of some kind. The theory does not challenge the idea of evolution defined as change over time or even common ancestry, but it does dispute Darwin's idea that the cause of biological change is wholly blind and undirected. It says, yet yeah, that's blind and undirected capacities of the created world can do stuff, but there, maybe there are signs that there's more actively going on than that. And actually, I think ID thesis boils down to three core claims. That there, one, there's empirical evidence that passes two reliable design detection criteria, three, to warrant a scientific inference to intelligent design as the best explanation of that evidence. Those are the three core claims. Now, uh, that this is a scientific inference, that's a dis dis debate within philosophy of science, and many atheists actually today, like Richard Dawkins or Bradley Monton, I quoted, or Victor Stenger, accept that ID is a scientific theory. They just think it's a false one, but they think it's a scientific theory. Thomas Nagel uh, says, look, a purely semantic linguistic classification of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. Right? So long as you don't think that science is the only way to know stuff, right? he's kind of saying, who cares whether this argument is scientific or not? I care about whether it's true or not that design explains some things in the, in the biological world. And I kind of say... Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, I, I, I kind of agree, but I would add that if it turns out that intelligent design is true, it would be really implausible not to call it science. <laughs> That's just going to be really awkward, and we're going to train all the you know, members of the philosophy department to start using mass spectrometers and, and telescopes and microscopes and things so that they can... <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I, I kind of like lumping this all into natural philosophy, as you know, but uh, why not just tweak what we define science as? Um, that's going to be a lot easier. Um, I think there's no good reason to say that making such an inference is unscientific and kind of say, no, we can't do that in science. Um, it's a bit like applying David Hume's arguments about miracles and saying, you know, history doesn't say miracles don't happen, but it, it can't mention, you can't discuss the topic in history, so we can't talk about what happened uh, on the third day to Jesus, who knows, you know. Um, well, t just because we've defined history in a certain way, a subject that's not allowed to mention anything supernatural. Well, fine, okay, I'm going to introduce a new subject. It's called, What Actually Happened in the Past Studies? And you're allowed to investigate 
what you think the best explanation of events in the past were on the basis of historical evidence, and you're allowed to mention something supernatural if you think you've got a good enough reason for it. I'm not breaking the rule of methodological naturalism in history. I'm not doing history. I'm doing what happened in the past, that is. Right? I, yeah. So, kind of, as Nagel says, this gets kind of semantic, but surely what we should be interested in primarily is the question of what's true, like Monton said, um, and go from there. Uh, so the second claim is that we've got reliable design, design detection criteria, and I've introduced what I think is one, this specified complexity criteria. I published a peer-reviewed philosophy article a number of years ago showing how people who disagree with ID use explicitly and implicitly this specified complexity criteria in their work, including their scientific work, uh, to, do, uh, to do work. Uh, it's um, not contentious difference. It's not what makes the difference between whether you agree an idea or not, I think. Um, Craig, we've, I've quoted him before uh, about the, the illustration about the poker game uh, and things, and I just put a couple of books up if you're interested in the kind of the mathematical precise definition of this criteria. Um, work with William Densky and then colleagues. Um, the most recent book is Introduction to Evolutionary Informatics. Uh, and a, they've got a website. They've published a number of peer-reviewed uh, scientific um, journal articles in this area. It, but even to quote Richard Dawkins from an op-ed in Free Inquiry magazine, uh, Dawkins himself said, specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed about in a box is as improbable as what he calls a fully functioning, genuinely complicated, specifically complicated, watch. What is, what is specified about a watch is that it is improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. So yes, any arrangement of watch bits is one possible arrangement of watch bits out of all the possible arrangement of watch bits. But if you see the watch bits arranged into a watch that's telling the time, <laughs> you infer design, and quite rightly. Yeah. Not to mention the fashioning of each of those individual individual. Right. Elements. Not e not even getting into that issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. So the, the the first core claim here is that empirical evidence in the biological realm, say, passes through some such criteria, and that we yeah it's fine to call that science, but that's a kind of secondary issue. One and two are the the key core claims of ID, as it were. Um, but as we've been intimating, life requires information in this sort of specified complexity, functionally defined information kind of a sense. Watson and Crick uh, in 53 announced the discovery of the three-dimensional double helical structure of DNA, and it was soon after in 58 that Crick theorized the sequence specificity of amino acid in proteins derives from a prior specificity of arrangement in the nucleotide bases of the DNA molecule which functioned just like alphabetic letters in an English text or binary digits in software or a machine code. It's not an analogy, it's an identical, mathematically speaking, property. Experiments in the 60s established that the sequential arrangement of amino acids that determines the folding and thus the function of proteins is indeed encoded within the rungs of the DNA ladder. And since the 60s, it's therefore been apparent that, as origin of life researcher Bernard Ulf Kolpers observed, quote, that the problem of the origin of life 
is clearly basically equivalent to the problem of the origin of information. Here's a quote from Richard Dawkins. He says, at the bottom of my garden is a large willow tree and it's pumping downy seeds into the air containing DNA whose coded characters spell out specific instructions for building willow trees. It's raining instructions out there. It's raining programs. That is not a metaphor. It's the plain truth. Questions, where do programs come from? Starting with the Hungarian British scientist philosopher Michael Polonyi's 1967 paper, Life Transcending Physics and Chemistry, the scientific recognition of information that the root and heart of biology has formed the basis for increasingly sophisticated arguments against reductive explanations of life in terms of physical chance and or necessity, and for the need to incorporate an appeal to intelligence into any causally adequate explanation of organic life. So as Maya argues in a book like Signature in the Cell, there's simply too much information in the cell to be explained by chance alone. The information in DNA and RNA has also been shown to defy explanation by forces of chemical necessity. Uh, saying otherwise would be like saying a headline arose as the result of chemical attraction between ink and paper. It would be like saying that the position of my uh, magnetic alphabet letters on the fridge is, deter is determined by the magnetic forces. N no. The fact that they stick on the fridge is determined by magnetic law. But the arrangement of the letters is not determined by, by a physical law. Indeed, if, if it was, you couldn't use arrangements of those letters to communicate different bits of information. Because the arrangement would be determined by natural law. So you couldn't use it as the, as the way of communicating a code. Likewise, in DNA, there's, there's, there's forces of attraction that explain why the nucleotides stick within the ladder, but the, uh, the sequence arrangement is not determined by any physical forces. DNA functions like a software program. We know from experience that software comes from programmers. Uh, also, this connects with the, the idea you may have heard of irreducible complexity, which is really a, a, it's a subset, a form of specified complexity. There's an overlap here, actually. Michael Behe in Darwin's Black Box argued that by, by irreducibly complex, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to achieving a basic function, wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to effectively cease that function. Now, he argues that the body is full of this kind of molecular machine constructed out of the, the proteins. He says an IC system can't evolve directly by slight successive modifications with advantages along each step of the way, right, for natural selection to select, because a direct precursor of a, such a system that's missing a part is by definition non-functional. It doesn't achieve that function. Might achieve something else, but you don't get this function by a gradual direct route of evolution. And he says an IC system is very unlikely to evolve indirectly, which is the other possibility. He says it's possible, but very unlikely. And he says as the complexity of an interacting system increases, as the number of different kinds of molecules involved and so on goes up, the likelihood of such an indirect evolutionary route drops exponentially. 
In other words, if a system is irreducibly complex, it is an example of a specified achieving a function complexity, complex enough to be implausible to attribute that match to the functional pattern to chance. So things exhibiting specified complexity are best explained as the product of intelligent design. Intelligence is the only known cause of such information. Life exhibits specified complexity at a number of places, you might argue, say in the large amounts of functional information at the origin of life, in the origination of new animal body plans over history, and so on, uh, in molecular machines, etc., etc. Three, therefore, the best explanation of life includes an appeal to intelligent design, and that would be the argument. As I say, that the criteria is not particularly controversial in as much as, you know, Richard Dawkins will... His philosophy will object to it, mm. but as a, as a scientific criteria, or allowing that, yeah, that's a scientific argument, okay. So really the, the heart of the controversy is over the empirical claim that, say, um, irreducibly complex machines are unlikely enough to count as things that we can infer design from, or it's unlikely enough that life arose from non-life to have that information processing system. And there, there are, there, are, there are folks like uh, Eugene Koonin who will say it's massively unlikely if this is the only universe, you know, that would indicate design, but appeal to the multiverse. If there's enough universes randomly percolating away, then life could evolve from non-life by chance. And so again, the multiverse comes in here to increase your probabilistic resources to mean that, okay, it's specified, but it's not actually unlikely or complex enough because there's more throws of the dice happening. And we're back into our conversation about the multiverse hypothesis. At which point I end my remarks. We all rush down to the coach and uh, grab a water on the way. Thank you. <laughs>